Okay. And um, I'm going to try not to yell because if I yell, I stop. And so this is what you're going to get. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pace this. Be patient with me because there's some things the Lord wants to say. And, and I believe that some of the challenges that I've had through this weekend is because there's just been, you know, sickness isn't from the Lord, it's from the enemy. And I just, I, just, I just think there is an attempt to shut down what he wants to drop in maybe a couple of you that could really help you uh, pursue your wholeness and be free. All right, because we want to learn to love ourselves in order that we might fulfill the great commandment to love our neighbor the same way. And so we're going to conclude this series. I want you to know it's not going to stop just because the month goes to June. But if, if you need help getting pointed in a direction, I want you to know that uh, my wife, who is just, she's just all over this uh, in an amazing way. Uh, but for me as well, we can help you get pointed in the right direction, and we would love to do that. I have what I call this love-hate relationship with philosophy and with psychology. The reason I say love-hate relationship is because I enjoy reading in both of these areas, and maybe some of you do too. And, you know, philosophy or a philosopher looks at his environment and he can begin to analyze the environment and where he sees things are wrong or need to be changed. A psychologist is one who can look at a person and they can begin to analyze a person and they begin to see what, what may be good or bad or what's right or wrong. And so I have this love-hate relationship with these two fields of study. And the reason being is because both philosophers and psychologists can help us, and I believe they can be helpful, in identifying or analyzing where you and I could potentially be messed up or dysfunctional, even where culture is dysfunctional. Uh, people who even critique religion can help us if they're critiquing something valid. Most philosophers, when they're critiquing religion, think they're undermining God. They might be able to critique a church, but they have a hard time critiquing Jesus. And there's a difference between the two. That's another sermon. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that there's this love-hate relationship that sometimes we can get help from these people in identifying things that are going wrong in us. The part that is, uh, hate may be too strong a word, but the part that is challenging for me is that you can listen to their analysis, but most of the time their answers come up short. Because answers usually in this area are some critique that's, that's, linked back into man where we know the answer ultimately comes from God. We are fractured before him and only he can put us back together again. And so it's good to identify what it is that has caused any dysfunction or brokenness in our life, but we need to understand that the only healer to that is Jesus himself. I remember when we were going to school, my wife and I, this is back in our mid-20s, my wife worked for a group of psychologists, and it really discouraged me because they were a family therapy group, and one of the psychologists there had been married four times. And I thought to myself, that must be really challenging to give advice in this area when you're dysfunctional in this area. She ultimately had to leave uh, that uh, psychology group. She worked as uh, a receptionist for them. Because one of the doctors put up an inappropriate picture 
from a magazine on a bulletin board and put the label Tracy over it. Now in those days we didn't understand sexual harassment, but that's exactly what it was. And so she left that job. And so I always had kind of a distaste in my mouth for not only academic reasons, but just simply practical reasons that there wasn't a lot of help uh, in the area of psychology. But, but today I want to just crack open a can, and I'm going to use the scripture to do this, in order to help you see through the Bible that there are some things that God speaks to us about that even psychologists have tapped onto, but what they don't understand is that they are not the ones that can enter into this area to heal you and to help you. How many of you know even a medical doctor at times can't get to where the problem is? If Jesus doesn't get in there, you will never be healed and whole. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can get into certain areas of our mind and in our heart that can help us get to a place of wholeness and functioning as intended before our God. So I, wanna, I want you to listen to me. I'm going to download some things. I honestly believe for us as a church, this may be one of the most consequential things that I will say this year and maybe for a number of years. So I really want your attention and listen to me. And even if I'm, even if I'm shooting at you like a fire hose, just open up your mouth and believe you're going to get most of it. And I titled what I'm sharing this afternoon, It's Deeper Than You Think. It's Deeper Than You Think. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul writes, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, listen, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Everybody just repeat that phrase after me. Say, in the futility of their mind. One more time. In the futility of their mind. I'm going to stop there. There is, there is a way of walking that in your mind is futile. I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but Paul's identifying something in these Ephesians. He says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But then he says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him. As the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, now listen, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Let's say that one together. Ready? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Talking about it's deeper than you think. Now, Paul is writing, I want you to keep this in mind, he's not writing to unbelievers, is he? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people just like you and me who are reading this letter that he's writing at Ephesus, 
In fact, these, these letters, these epistles were actually letters that most of the time a church would read and then they would pass it to another church for them to read as well. And they just pass these letters along until they finally became codified as scripture. And so literally from the very beginning, as Paul was writing to Ephesus, everybody who named Jesus as Lord would eventually get this letter and they would realize that he was writing to them. Ephesus however, is who originally got the letter. And as a city, it had its issues. It was a port city, as you'll recall. Port cities were debauched cities because that's where all the commerce and the economy was. And so sin would abound in port cities. Dysfunction and abuse were normal in a port city. In a port city, there would be prostitution, so women were being abused. In a port city, there would be temples erected to all sorts of gods. And, and within, the, uh, within the cultist framework of that particular god, there would be perversions that would take place. Perversions not only between men and women, but upon children as well. So children were being abused. And so it was a, an abusive culture at its root. And so as, as people would get saved and as they would be saved out of that perverted culture, Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus, was learning what most of us probably already know at some level, and it's this, that salvation can address many issues in a person's life. But how many of you realize that you might get a new heart when you're saved and your inner man might be quickened unto life? But how many of you know you still oftentimes have the same old brain? My joke has always been, God shouldn't have given me a new heart. I needed a new brain. He changed my heart, but my brain, my mind, still oftentimes thinks in some of the same patterns that it thought when I was an unsaved person. So getting saved may quicken my spirit, but it does not necessarily address everything in my soul. And as you'll recall, what is your soul? Your soul is your mind, your will, or the place you make decisions. Your mind, your will, and your emotions, where your feelings are. So God quickens unto life your spirit, but here you are with this soul that's functioning at times just like it did when you were unsaved. So... Paul reminds them as believers that they were not to walk or they were not to do life in the same way their neighbors were doing life. In other words, he's saying there should be a quality of existence for the believer that looks differently than the world. And when he talks about this, he calls the world Gentiles. The Gentiles, that word means the world, your worldly neighbor is a Gentile. You were a Gentile too at one time until you were born again. And once you were born again, you became of the seed of Abraham. Now, I told, tell you all of this to tell you that stopping certain behaviors or ceasing to mimic how your neighbor lives is not as simple as it initially sounds. Abundance of life and the life of God is literally linked to how you think. Did you get that? 
God's abundancy in your life. Just ignore, ignore the voice behind the man. The, the abundancy of God, that, all that stuff we just quoted before we took an offering. All the promises of God, all your future, all your purpose, all your destiny, all of these things, listen to me, is linked to how you think. Your life, to a deeper extent than you may have ever imagined, is directly linked to what goes on in your mind. The scripture says that as a man thinks, what? So is he. So your mind, for better or worse, is determining to no small degree the type of life you are experiencing and you will experience. And so Paul, as he writes this letter to the Ephesian church. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to God's people. He sets up all of this by pitting these two concepts against one another. There are these two types of thinking or these two competing ways of thinking that's at war at times within each one of us. Two competing concepts. The first one, he says is the futility of the mind or thinking like a Gentile. Now, let me stop here for just a minute. The word futility comes from the Greek to mean purposeless or empty or ineffectual. It means unstable, frail, aimless, meaningless, but I like this one the best. It means devoid of truth. In other words, when Gentiles, when their minds are spinning around in futility, what that means is, is that they've not linked to truth. It's devoid of truth. And so Paul uses these metaphors. He says that their understanding is in darkness. That's what he's saying. It says that they are alienated from the life of God, or they're alienated from the quality of life that God would desire for them. How many of you know that God has a desire for a quality of life for you to live in? He doesn't want you fearful. He doesn't want you torn up. He doesn't want you in anxiety. He doesn't want you losing your peace. He doesn't want you lacking joy. Can we agree on that? That God has a quality of life that he really wants for us. But the Gentiles don't walk in that. Why? Because futility is devoid of truth. And part of that truth is they just don't know it ignorantly or they don't believe it. Now listen, Paul never said that they, the Ephesians, were alienated from God himself. He did not say they were unsaved. He said, you're thinking like your neighbor and it's creating futility they're saved but they're thinking like their neighbor and there's no worse feeling than the feeling of doing life and it seems futile it seems meaningless i'm not getting anywhere it's purposeless there's no joy to this thing i'm not happy about it anymore I don't have a direction. I'm aimless. I don't, I'm not getting any guidance. Do you understand? That's why people take their lives. 
if it gets bad enough, what they say is there's no reason to even go on anymore. So, boom. And it makes sense to them. But they've been living in the futility of their mind. Paul says, that's Gentile thinking. It is thinking, he says, which ultimately revolves around, he says, lewdness and greed. Isn't that true? People go running after they want to be fulfilled in pleasures with their body. Or they run after and they want to just you know, make more money. And they think the more money they make, the, the better they will feel. And, and I can almost assure you that, that money may... And meet some needs and there can be benefits to it but ultimately if money is the center of your life you're going to find out that even that comes up short so the futility of the mind is contrasted with the renewed mind in other words there are those that think like gentiles and then he says there will be those that think like a believer or think like a christian the renewed mind now, the renewed mind is the mind that is living in the life of God. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that your circumstances will be perfect. I'm not saying that life will be perfect. I'm not saying that you won't find challenging moments. Indeed, this world will throw everything it can at you to keep you in Gentile thinking. But there's a place in God that he says the mind is renewed in order that it can apprehend the truth of themselves and their circumstances. In other words, it's the mind of an overcomer, a person who is purposed, a person that's been established in joy, in peace, and in hope. They can see things and understand things the same way that God sees things and understands things. Do you understand? God's still on the throne, but this world is still nuts. So God's exaltedness doesn't change just because the world is crazy. So he must look at it a different way. Obviously, when God looks at the world, he's not saying to himself, well, I must not be a very good God because look at the way the world's running. Does he? Because he sees things differently. He understands them differently. He sees things, the end from the beginning. He sees the fulfillment of what's going to happen. He sees this. He understands this. And, and, and when we receive the mind of Christ, what happens is our thinking is renewed. And when it's renewed, it suddenly revolves around not our circumstances, but the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't revolve around selfishness, but it revolves around selflessness. And what begins to take place is we can be in the most challenging of situations but if our mind is right, we can see things differently in that challenging situation than how the Gentiles might look at it. Now the question becomes, if Christians in Ephesus are thinking like Gentiles, then how in the world do you quit thinking like a Gentile and get a renewed mind? Isn't that the question? Because everyone in this room, and I'll just, I'll just confess for you, we all think terribly, dysfunctionally. Don't you tell me, not you. 
We got to cast a lion spirit out of you then. Come on, all of us at various levels, I'll grant you that, at various levels, think like Gentiles. How do we stop this? Paul says, renewal begins in the spirit of the mind. Now, this is the part that was helpful for me as I began to just sort of study this. I've never, I've never preached on this passage, verse 23. I've never ever kind of explored it, deconstructed it, looked at it in the original language, you know, read what other people thought about it. But this is really important. What is the spirit of the mind? This is the only time in all of Scripture the phrase is used, spirit of the mind. Now, a psychologist will tell us that our brain is like an iceberg. Our brain is like an iceberg. If you know anything about icebergs, about 20% of an iceberg is above the water and 80% of the iceberg is below the water. Our brain is a little like that iceberg. Your mind, like that iceberg, your conscious mind is only about 10 to 20% of what you really know and what you've really stored. So 10 to 20% of what you think you know and what you've stored is up there in the conscious level of your mind. But 80 to 90% of things that you've stored in your mind is in an unconscious area, which means there's a lot of things that have happened in your life that you may not be instantly consciously aware of, but your mind has stashed it away in there somewhere. Now many people have labeled that area of the mind the subconscious. Now, the subconscious is not... I'm just going to get some water here. The subconscious is not a biblical phrase. Psychology just tries to find a way to label things that it's grappling with. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying that's what they've defined it. I believe the Bible defines what psychology says is the subconscious. I believe the Bible defines that area as the spirit of the mind. You'll never extrapolate subconscious by that phrase out of the scripture. I get that. And I also get the reason people are a little bit dicey with that subconscious stuff is because there's a lot of secular unbiblical teaching that can arise if you just go study the subconscious so i get why some of that stuff just needs tossed out freud was a nut okay freud was a nut i'm not talking freudian here i'm just simply saying psychology gets that there's some area of our mind that is latent it's unconscious it's not something that's just instantly there but it's back there and i believe what paul was saying here is that there is a spirit of the mind and i believe he's identifying by inspiration of the holy spirit the region in your mind and my mind that is not automatically or currently focally aware there are things spinning in your mind right now that you're not even aware are spinning around there he's identifying that part of your mind 
which is the permanent storehouse of all of your memories. The good memories, the bad memories, the ugly memories, the pleasant memories. You have a storehouse in there of everything. It's the place from the moment you're born to this very second, you're storing information. You're storing experiences. You're, you're storing everything that comes into your life that you've intersected with as you've walked along. Professionals tell us that there's somewhere between 70 and 100 trillion images that will appear in your lifetime. And all of those images are going to be stored somewhere. That part of your mind, it never sleeps, it never rests, it's always on duty. You don't realize it, it's always on duty. It contains your entire history of memories. It packs away every experience, every word, every joy, every pain, every blessing, every injustice. Whatever it was, joyful, painful, right, wrong, fair, unfair, it goes into storage. It's gathering information. Back when you were unsaved and that night you got drunk that you don't remember what happened, it remembers and stored it. Or you were on your cocaine buzz and you don't remember consciously, but I guarantee you it was stored even they say when you're in a coma, the reason they have people talking to you if you were ever in a coma is because they know it's all going to be stored in there. It never sleeps. Why? Because your conscious mind can only hold so much without overloading. And so it's quite accurate to say that there are certain events or feelings that get stuffed into your psyche. Have you ever heard that phrase? Stuff it. Stuff it. If I just stuff it, I'll forget it. No, you don't. It may not be in your conscious mind, but it's still in there. Now, how does this area of the mind work? Now, simply put, this portion of your mind, which is always awake, it's always storing information, it's processing all of your experiences and feelings which it has gathered in your life. And what it does is it turns it into your wisdom upon which you draw upon its processing to solve your problems or navigate life. Now this is critical. Listen to me. The spirit of your mind does not naturally contain the truth. It's a storehouse. It stores whatever goes in there. So it does not mean it naturally has the truth. It contains, however, what you consider and what I would consider to be our version of the truth. Are you following me? It may or may not be true. It's just our version of the truth. So it controls most often your reactions to things that happen to you. It is what rushes to your conscience mind most of the time, unbeknownst to you, to answer or respond to whatever moment you're facing. Let me give you an example. I, when I was five years old, I went to my neighbor's house and they had a big German Shepherd dog. 
This has nothing to do with German shepherds, by the way, for those that own them. But they had a big German shepherd dog. I remember him to be a nice dog generally. But he was eating in the garage out of his bowl. And so I'm five years old. I just was wanting to pet the dog. And my arm reached out and I started to pet the dog. And the dog turned around and he bit me. Right square. I could show you to this day. This is over 50 years ago. I can show you the tooth mark that he went deep into my skin to bite me. Now hear me. I understand the dog had not waited up all night long waiting for me to come into the garage to bite me. I understand that at five years old, I didn't know any better. Maybe I should have. But I didn't know any better to go pet the dog. He bit me. I'm using this to say everybody could be innocent in that scenario. But that dog biting me gets put into the storehouse. So as I begin to go through life, what begins to happen when I see a dog run up to me? What begins to happen when I begin to interact with an animal, let's say, and maybe they're in another garage, I walk into a garage, and I see an animal eating, and I say, I, I, I don't even think about this anymore. I just, this is just one I pulled out. What happens? Something goes back into that storehouse, and the storehouse says, defend yourself. That dog may bite you. Are you following me? That's how it works. And you know what? I don't go through all of life thinking about that dog moment. As a matter of fact, I kind of had to generate that just to use as an illustration. But whatever, whatever situation I face today, I have events, I have traumas, I have information that has been stored in the spirit of my mind whether I get it or not, that rush to the front to my consciousness to help me process what it is I'm facing at that particular moment. So imagine people who may have experienced abuse. Think of somebody, ladies, a girl that was sexually trafficked, and maybe she's rescued. And she begins to do life. And then she gets married. And then what's supposed to be a wonderful consummating moment on a wedding night. Can you begin to understand that there's a trauma in there. That unless it's addressed it rushes up. And her husband and her despite being in a thoroughly God honoring legitimate moment. There's something that happens that she reacts not as a sinner, not as someone who's unsaved, but someone whose mind in this area has not been renewed. What about someone that was rejected? People don't realize that there are times when, when babies who are even in the womb and moms don't want to be pregnant that that rejection can be sensed and felt and received even while they're in the womb. And so 
They come out and they grow up and they look at life through eyes that are anticipating rejection everywhere they go. Why is that? Because events have been stored. Or the one, <clears throat> let's say the, the baby that was born and the mom was wanting to do a great thing with the baby by handing the baby to a couple. Maybe she wasn't married or she couldn't do you know, uh, appropriate parenting. And so she wanted to do something really good. And so she hands the baby to adoptive parents. And so that's, nobody's guilty. But yet, it's stored in that area. Imagine injustice. Imagine dear, near-death experiences. Whatever you've gone through life, they're processed. Sometimes at the moment when you're looking at a situation. So when you face a current event, the spirit of the mind gravitates to what it knows or has experienced. It does not necessarily gravitate to what is best or what is God. Why? Because if none of that has been put in there, it doesn't have it to anything to gravitate to. It processes only what's been placed in the storage unit. Experts say that your unconscious programming starts at least at birth and is highly downloaded for the first seven years. But it will continue to store things through your teen years and even into your adulthood. That is why some of us already know that in our adult years we react certain ways. In fact, my wife calls it arrested development because of the trauma that took place. Some of us are in our 50s and 60s and we still react like we're 12. Because that's where we're processing out of that event. Large parts of your life are being determined and governed by what you've stored in the spirit of your mind. Now, here's I don't what time is it, guys? Am I, I if I take an extra minute or two, just stay with me. There are large parts of your life that are being determined and governed by what you've stored in that area. Now, let's go to normal operation. Normal operation. If the spirit of your mind is functioning in its purest form, this has an amazing capacity to guard you and protect you. Honestly, it could be the place where your conscience is located. It's, it's, it's what can tell you, hey, don't go there, don't do that. You know that's going to burn you. I mean, it, it can be used for wonderful, wonderful purposes. In fact, Paul said to the Ephesians these words in chapter 3. He said that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. So if this area is working as intended, there could be infinite possibilities in accessing the life of God, in accessing His promises. So if you're whole, anything can be possible. That's why you got to fight for your wholeness. That's why you have to pursue your wholeness. But what happens if it's dysfunctional? What if it's broken? It is highly unlikely that any person gets through life without some sort of trauma. To say that you got through life without any trauma, I'm just here to tell you, you are negating the doctrine of depravity. <laughs> Sin, by its very nature, scars us all. You may have a different level of scarring than your neighbor, 
but we've all been scarred. You may have grown up with parents who are like Ward and June Cleaver, but that does not mean there weren't traumas and challenges to your mind. For instance, parents who constantly fought, divorced parents, verbal, sexual, physical abuse, rape, you had an unfair, unjust teacher who had it out for you. There was a bully at school that would pick on you and take your lunch or take your milk money. There's some, maybe you were in high school and there was some embarrassing moment and everybody laughed at you in class. Maybe you were dumped by a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Maybe you were told you were stupid. I mean, I, I could label all kinds of things, but the repository is the place for all of these memories, these events, these emotions. It's the place where we stuff things and hope that we never have to remember them again. If you stuff them, you want to know where they're stuffed? They're stuffed in the spirit of your mind. And you may think that you've forgotten certain things because they aren't in your conscious mind. But in this unconscious area, you have stored it and you will process with it until it is canceled. That is why the spirit of the mind is a powerful area for either good or bad, help or problems. You either think like a Gentile in futility or you walk in abundancy with a renewed mind. It is constantly at work. And that is why Satan does his best to make sure that your past is exploited. To bring things before your eyes continually that remind you of your past. Because he knows that a mind that's not been renewed is a playground to detour you to God's best. Think this through with me. I just started thinking about this. Is it not true? Some of your parents maybe aren't this old. My parents are, 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 are more of this age. But they grew up, my folks grew up coming out of the depression they lived with true lack most of us don't know what lack is some of them know what lack is and because of that lack they became for lack of a better term tight thrifty they'd even hoard now you know why they did that I had an aunt that passed away and when we went down into her basement, she had hoarded every magazine, every newspaper, every circular, every flyer. She had, she had canned goods that were dated back a decade in her basement. I mean, it was like she was waiting for a nuclear holocaust to take place, and she'd, she'd have survived with most of the neighborhood in her basement. Well, why would somebody do that? She's processing life through traumas. You've heard my wife tell her story about growing up in the house she did, and I'm not going to tell those stories again. I did think of one because I think her dad was just a really good case study concerning how the spirit of the mind unrenewed just causes you to think different ways. I think she told one time the story about when he was growing up, his parents could only afford to buy him shoes once a year. And so if the shoes wore out, he had to go to school barefooted. And most often they did wear out. And so a good portion of the school year, he had to go to school. We're talking high school barefooted. 
And of course, people would make fun of him. And uh, they would belittle him, and his poverty would be out for all to see. And I never thought of this until I just started kind of meditating and thinking over this. My father-in-law had this thing for boots. He bought boots everywhere he went. He had a thousand, did he not? He had a thousand boots in his closet. He'd give boots away, but he was never going to be without boots. Why is that? Because that's how he processed life. My dad lost his dad when he was eight years old. It wasn't my dad's fault. His dad died of a heart attack. But the trauma of the loss of a dad and how it rearranged his life caused him to process life differently, the environment around him differently. Listen, all of us have our traumas, some which we inherit. That's called a generational curse. Some we experience and develop on our own. It becomes our way of processing our interactions with people. And this is why Satan is vying for control of your mind. Because if the spirit of your mind stays unrenewed, it becomes exploited. So when you're offended, you need to ask yourself, am I offended because of what is legitimately before me? Or am I processing life from a vantage point that I'm being exploited in this moment to detour what ultimately is the destiny that God may have for me because I'm here to tell you God's people, His church I was talking to my son the other day and he of course is on staff at a gigantic church and he said, Dad, I don't know what's going on but it must be the season of offense everybody's offended and you know why? hey I can get offended too. You know why? Because you're replaying every experience, every injustice, every unfairness, every interaction. Don't even realize it. It's being replayed. Now the question is, how is all this going to change? I need to move from this quickly. It's not automatic. It's not easy. You got to want to be whole. Most of the church really doesn't want to be whole. They want to be facilitated in their brokenness. You want to keep your brokenness and you want the world to change for you. That's kind of where I've been at times. I've thought to myself, I don't want to change. Everybody else, it's their turn to change. Everybody else gets to change now. It's your turn. You're it. Tag. And that's why we think. We think everybody else needs to change. Let me, let me liberate you right now. Nobody around you is going to change. I'm just going to liberate you. Now, maybe somebody will, but chances are nobody will. So here's the deal. If you want to get through life, you may never change anything, anyone around you, but here's the good news. You can change the way you think. You're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to take responsibility. This is what we do. We say to ourselves well you know this is just the way i am this is how i grew up hey my parents did this to me so it's somebody else's fault it's not even my fault listen our freedom comes and our overcoming takes place when we quit blame shifting and we quit avoiding responsibility I'm never going to fix my mom and dad. I'm not going to fix you. I've come to this conclusion. It's actually real liberating. I will never fix any of you. 
And guess what? You may never fix me, but we can get fixed before God. And all of us then can change. I remember injustices. I remember trauma. I think as a church we've had corporate pain. I know we had corporate pain when this church was founded. Nobody escapes it. So anytime there is a reaction to a current incident, my guess is that the spirit of the mind has been poked by an unresolved past event. So three things you need to do. Number one is this. you got to recognize when it's happening. How do you recognize? You ask questions. You deal with your subconscious or your, the spirit of the mind by asking questions. You have to get beyond the walls of your defenses and begin to examine yourself. Ask yourself, what is causing me to do this? People aren't, people aren't creating my spirit. They're just revealing my spirit. Nobody creates who I am. They just reveal who I already am. So Holy Spirit, help me. What's the deal here? 